Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Fresh off of Talk the Thrones, The Ringer is introducing a new live Twitter after show covering season two of HBO's Big Little Lies. Immediately after each episode, The Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes will be going live to give their initial reactions and break down everything we saw in the episode. And to kick us off, there will be a special season two preview airing on Friday, June 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific. So join Amanda and Mina for Big Little Live every Sunday on Twitter. My lords and ladies, I suppose this is the most important moment of our lives. What we decide today will reverberate through the annals of history. I stand before you to tell you that Binge Mode contains adult content and also spoilers. And I like to think my experience has led to some small skill in statecraft and an understanding. And now, binge mode. I know you don't want it. I know you don't care about power. But I ask you now, if we choose you, will you wear the crown? Will you lead the Seven Kingdoms to the best of your abilities from this day until your last day? Why do you think I came all this way? Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today from New York City. Now that he's finished searching for Drogon above Volantis. I'm just looking. All over Essos. I'll be back in a while. I'm just looking for him. (laughs) It's Ringer Senior Creative. You're Maester. And I'm fucking doing it again. Give me a drum roll. (laughs) Give me some champagne corks popping. Some confetti swirling through the sky. Emmy winner, Jason Concepcion. Thank you, Mel. It's still just a thrill to say it. It still is uh, surreal to hear it. Mel. Yeah. I'm not going to go now because it's still time for Binge Mode Game of Thrones, where we've explored every single episode of Game of Thrones television series and aren't ready to leave Westeros just yet. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Seven-pointed star for reading, five stars for binge mode reviews. Also, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join up on our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to share your newfound enthusiasm for the last watch breakout star, Andrew McClay. Love him. Also, why don't you head over to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch wonderfully comfortable for dragon pit summons and television reflections alike. And how about joining us at the third annual Con of Thrones, which is coming to Nashville, Tennessee this summer, July 12th to 14th. Celebrity guests include Nikolai Kostar Waldau, Mm. Jamie, John Bradley, Sam, and Hannah Murray, Gilly, and Joe Dempsey Gendry. 
Full weekend of day passes and special Valerian passes are available now at Thrones.net. So get your passes now and come determine the future of the realm with us. Yes. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored how duty shaped the Iron Throne, the series finale of Game of Thrones. And today we're diving deep. Deep. Into your Raven Scrolls. As always, speculation and spoiler warning, we will be going deep. Around details from the series finale and all that came before it. The whole thing. All of it. So chug some giant's milk to help you find your strength. Because it's time for an all Game of Thrones edition. Vast the underscore. Jason, we got so many questions, as always, from the wonderful binge heads out there. Kick us off. What's number one? Number one from John Walsh. With all the episodes completed, will you please rank your top five all-time episodes? I'm interested in, if any mm. in the final two seasons make the cut. Wonderful. So we're each going to give our personal top fives here. But if you want more episode rankings, be sure to check out the definitive Game of Thrones episode rankings list that's on the ringer.com where various Ringer staffers have contributed for our master staff Ranking of all 73 episodes. Spoiler alert, Winds of Winter is number one. Why don't you go first? Okay. Should we count from five to one to leave the big reveal, or does every single person listening know our number one already? They know our number one, for sure. So let's count to five to one. Okay. My number five is The Door. Season six, episode five. Mm. Wonderful episode of television. Obviously, RIP to two of our main dudes, Hodor and Summer. In iconic brand episode, seeing the Night King's creation, the Night King touching him, getting the Night King's mark, sights from the past that he takes in when Blood Raven uses those precious final moments to return him to the Winterfell yards where we see Rickard and young Ned, you know, if you have to fight, win. And obviously, Bran creating Hodor as he wargs into Hodor's mind across time. And Hodor holds the door. Other really interesting things happen in that episode. Obviously, near and dear to my heart, Danny commanding Jorah to heal himself from the grayscale and then return to her. Sansa challenging Littlefinger in Molestown. That's a, a really crackling, powerful moment of Sansa's empowerment. We get a king's boot. Arya taking in the Bravosi Theater. Love the Bravosi Theater. Really enjoyed actually seeing how <laughs> other parts of the known world would have been talking in the moment about events from Westerosi history. That's really fascinating. And listen, we can't talk about the door without mentioning the Flame of Truth Kinvara, who comes to uh, Marine. Flame of Truth. The Flame Where of Truth. Where are you? <laughs> in our hearts, if nowhere yeah. else. <laughs> Eternally in our hearts. The door was the one that I struggled with the most whether to keep it on my top five because, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, a lot of the things I love about it so much felt slightly less potent after the conclusion of the show, specifically how powerful of an episode this is in terms of our insight at the time into Bran's powers and the question it raised about Bran's connection to the Night King. Can Bran change the past, et cetera, et cetera. However... I still just think it's such an absolutely captivating hour of TV and so emotionally forceful that it really has stuck in my heart and in my mind. And I know that no matter what, every time I rewatch it for the rest of my life, it's going to grip me fully. And frankly, the flip side of having that moment where you ask yourself, well, does this ultimately matter as much as I thought I did, is that it's really nice, actually, to return to a moment when you thought it did yes. matter that much. I kind of like that. That's my reasoning behind your next pick. I struggled with that very same argument with myself 
vis-a-vis your next pick, which is why I left it off my top five. Interesting tease. What's your number five? My number five is Hard Home. Mm -hmm. Just fabulous. Edge of your seat action, the likes of which at that time you'd just never seen on television before. We get the full power of the Army of the Dead put on display really for the first time and it is a nightmare scenario. You you understand now. You know, before this, the movements of the wildlings, Mance Raiders' ability to cobble these mm-hmm. disparate tribes together because of the reawakening of the others and the White Walkers is just kind of hinted at. But now when you see it, you see the full power of it. It's just staggering. You think, how can anyone stand against this? We got to see a giant in action, fighting. We, (laughs) you know, we got to, we get the reveal of the importance of Valerian steel. And there's all these kind of very small mini arcs where we meet these characters who then immediately die. But the ability to become invested in Carsey's life. And then her brief life, her very, very, (laughs) her very extremely brief life, (laughs) I think is really an important achievement. This was the moment when Tormund and John's friendship was really cemented. Yeah. You know, we take that for granted now. That's one of the strongest bonds that there is in the show, but it was really forged in that moment. And just the action was just eye-popping. Everything about it was incredible. It's a fabulous hour of TV. It basically finished sixth for me. It's the one that I was surprised to find not in my top five. And Mm. also probably, you know how Tyrion's got his uh, Ask Me Again in 10 Years line in the finale? This for me is kind of like an Ask Me Again in 10 Minutes thing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, maybe tomorrow Hardhome would be number three on my list. I think that probably you feel similarly, and I bet a lot of Game of Thrones fans do, to how we think about certain episodes, maybe other than our absolute favorite, might just change based on where we are in our own lives and how we're reflecting on the story and what parts of it stand out the most or what we find ourselves missing the most. I think something like Hard Home for me, when I'm thinking about the moments where I really loved observing John's strength as a leader, that like quietly is one of my favorite parts of Hard Home. You know, when he makes the pitch to the wildlings, it doesn't work for all of them. Yeah. But to see the way that he's able to bring people together like that and obviously thinking about the ramifications of that and the cost of his sacrifice, it's really astonishing. I kind of couldn't believe I I didn't have it on my list. Really the last time that John would have in his life before looking into the Night King's eyes. <laughs> he had not <laughs> at that time looked into his eyes. And that was, you know, it's really before and after. You're right. <laughs> With John in that, in that sense. Most people, when they're talking about Game of Thrones, certainly the people in Westeros, they measure time, you know, AC. Yeah. Before and after Conquest. For us. AE. After eyes. I only have two units of measurement for Game of Thrones. Before and after John looked into the Night King's eyes and before and after John got a man bun. Though I guess that ended up being a finite experiment given that he (laughs) went back to the flowing locks in the finale. Alas. Number four for me. Is it recency bias? Maybe. I'm happy to admit that that's possible. Again, ask me again in 10 years, 10 months, 10 days, 10 minutes, whatever. I do think this is an incredible hour of TV and one that I find myself very grateful for amid the entire season eight experience. A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, the second episode of season eight, penned by Brian Cogman. I have a couple Cogman episodes on this five, actually. I have probably spent more time thinking about the Jamie Brianne nighting scene than 
anything else from season eight. Honestly, it was just so beautiful and stirring and meant so much to me and so many other people who had invested in those characters. And again, well, where did that all end up? I just find that for me, it just makes me cherish this more and it makes it feel even more precious to me that I got to kind of exist in this moment in time with these people where it felt like every experience that they had shared together culminated in that instant. Way, way, way way more so than the sex that comes later. This is the most intimate thing that they ever shared together. This is the moment where they were, in in the ways that really count in a person's life, totally naked and exposed with each other. And I just think it was so special, and I'm so glad that we got to experience it. And then some Mm. of the other highlights of that episode— Jenny's song, Pod singing Jenny's song, and the montage that we got over that. You know, we've talked a lot about Theon in the run-up to season eight and during season eight, but that moment that passed between Theon and Sansa over the soup during the montage was just beautiful. You know, something like Jorah receiving Heartsbane from Sam and getting that tiny, tiny, tiny dollop, even if you don't think that absolution is possible, that tiny dollop of kindness from Liana when she wished him good fortune. It's just like, I'm like about to cry just thinking about all this. It was so beautiful. Ariane Gendry's sex scene, which as you know, I loved and thought was a great moment Mm -hmm. for Arya and female empowerment. And such a nice reminder of how much time we've spent with these characters, how we've watched them grow. The Jamie Brand chat by the tree. I mean, super fucking weird to look back on now, given Brand's whole, yeah. how do you know there is an after and everything that happens with Brand, but from the Jamie perspective, it's just, I'm so invested in Jamie and everything that happened with Jamie in this episode was really important. And of course, this is the episode where Danny finds out from John about his parentage, which is a thing that kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> A thing that kind of didn't matter? (laughs) Well, it mattered for Danny ultimately, in terms of the rest of her arc, whether we uh, feel positively about that or not. I think we've spent a fair amount of microphone time talking about already. But I just find that this episode, we said it at the time when we watched it, and we're thinking about it before episodes three, four, five, and six. And now, retrospectively, it's even more clear and true. This really was, in many ways, the farewell, the love letter to so many of the characters that we loved. It's wonderful. That's what makes it special. It's certainly one of the finest episodes in the history, I think, of of this series. I couldn't put it on my top five just because of, you know, the ending does matter to me. Of course. It matters to me, too. (laughs) I think the ending, honestly, like the fact that I have to go, okay, I'll pretend the following four episodes didn't happen knocks it down a peg in my estimation. It does reframe a lot of the things that happened. You look at the way that JK handled the Snape reveal in the movies, which is to tell Alan Rickman that it was coming. Yeah. It's clear that the meeting that Benioff and Weiss had with George R. R. Martin, I think it was before season four, between three and four, where they were like, okay, tell us how it ends. Mm-hmm. Hey, we should have done that like after season one. You know what I mean? Because I think an awareness of where we were going to end up could have informed the ensuing seasons in so many small ways that could have vastly improved the landing, in my estimation. The last watch was incredible. And I think the moment when Kit finds out that John kills Danny is amazing. But also, like, kind of the fact that those two weren't pulled aside way, way, way earlier and said, here's what happens, inform your performance Mm -hmm. is not kind of great. Like, you know, like (laughs) Amelia could have, Amelia could have done a million little things 
that would have set up that turn so much mm-hmm. better. And so for me, I have to knock Night of the Seven Kingdoms down a bit, although I wholeheartedly agree. One of the finest episodes of the series and Jamie Knighting Brianna is like gives me special still. Yeah. It's special. What's your number four? My number four is Kissed by Fire. Yeah. It should be higher, I think. I have it higher. Spoiler alert. I think it probably <laughs> should be three. If you ask me again, again in 10 minutes, I could have it as high as two. Um, <laughs> Jamie and Brienne in the bath is maybe the best scene in the entire series. Maybe the, the best conversation in the entire series. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of how it reframes what you think and what you know about a character. Mm-hmm. And about two characters. And it's just like an exemplary work of TV writing. It's incredible. Then you have Beric's resurrection. Yes. So you get that first kind of inkling that death can be defeated. Mm-hmm. That there is life after death. Rob executing Rickard Karstark, which is kind of like the thing that sets up the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. Who could forget John uh, eating out in the cave? I have not forgotten. Ordering some Postmates <laughs> in the cave. Oh, God. That thing. You greet just getting that neck down there in the by the sulfur baths. Incredible. Is that what Lords? Is that what Lords? Ladies. Yeah, obviously the wildlings <laughs> not doing that. It's just about slam bam up there beyond the wall. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, an incredible, an incredible episode. Just an unbelievable episode. Jamie and Brian in the bath is like, there's a lot of other great things that happen in that episode, but Jamie and Brian in the bath is like, I could just watch that over and over and over and over and over again. The writing is unbelievable. The performances are unbelievable. It's great. I mean, that's the reason we sh- ended up shipping Jamie and yep. Brian for years afterwards is because of that scene. Absolutely. Agree with every single thing you said. Uh, I'm curious, based on what you just said about A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, I think it's fair to say that the bath scene with Jamie and Brienne and the knighting scene from A Night of the Seven Kingdoms are the two iconic Jamie and Brienne scenes. Is there like a penalty and a tax that you assign to what happens with those two in A Night of the Seven Kingdoms because of how close it is to the ultimate conclusion of their shared arc that you don't assign to the Hall bath scene because it's still in the crucial moments where they're finding out what their relationship is together? Like, is there a difference in how you think about the lasting impact of those two scenes? For sure, for sure. I think, listen, if you were going to, if you were plotting this, like, geometry, you know, mm-hmm. and, and kind of, like, putting the plot points of Jamie and Brand's relationship on a piece of graph paper. When you got to a night of the seven kingdoms, if you were to extrapolate that out, it would stay on the same trajectory that started with that bath at Harrenhal scene and not necessarily end up where <laughs> Jamie ends up at the end of the series, which is not to say that that is not a natural place for him to end up. It just does not feel like a natural place coming off of a night of the seven kingdoms. So I think recency bias, you have to, at least for me, it really does affect my ranking mm-hmm. of that particular episode and the way I feel about that scene. That makes sense. Okay. Interesting. My number three is the reigns of Castamere. Great one. Ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> I have heard of it. Listen, if I hear that song playing, I get up and leave. I just get up give and us, leave. Give us a little, give us a little hum. 
Oh my god, I'm getting chills. Yeah. I'm like looking over my shoulder to see if anyone's pointing a crossbow at me. How come Cat is the only one who notices? <laughs> you know, everybody else is just shit faced. They're like, wait, is that the Lanner's? That intuition. I know, man. Gray Wind sensed it even out in the pen. Oh my god. He knew. R.I.P. to my Every dude, time I'm Grey reminded Wind. of this, it drives me fucking <laughs> insane. And for the people who haven't read the books, it's so much worse than the books. Oh because Grey Wind literally stands in front of Rob and is like, don't go. Don't it's go. Like, it's like trying to stop him from walking forward. Oh my God. The direwolves are very special. And yeah. the other thing that's true is that Rob is an idiot. <laughs> He's fucking puss drunk. Oh, man. Reigns of Cashmere, obviously one of the most iconic episodes, not only in Game of Thrones, but in television history. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. Everybody knows why this is a special one. The Red Wedding. I mean, to this day, we've probably seen it, I don't know, 50 times. And every single time, my heart starts to race. My stomach clenches. Like, physically, I still react to it. Even though I know what's coming, rereading the books sends me into severe emotional distress in those chapters. The Arya perspective intercut with what's happening inside the actual hall. Losing Rob, losing Cat, losing Grey Wind, losing a whole swath of the Stark force strength. It's just absolutely astonishing. And this is still the thing, more than Ned, more than anything else that people point to when they're yes. talking about Thrones subversion and how this story change really what you thought was possible about and from stories, which is an incredible part of this show's legacy. There are other things in this episode, too, that happen that obviously are dwarfed by the impact of the Red Wedding, but this is when Bran wargs into Hodor, and again, this insight into what Bran is capable of doing that yeah. is just not possible from other people. And, like, I have to mention this. Maybe the toughest Jorah friend zone moment in the history of the oh show when they come back from claiming Yunkai and he just is so proud and so happy to see Danny in, the, in this the throes of glory and to receive her praise. And then she's like, where's Dario? Very, very <laughs> The way brutal. that his face like quivers. I need that youthful rod. <sighs> I'll take Jorah's rod. <laughs> What's your number three? <laughs> I honestly think that Kiss by Fire should be above this, but here's you my You can flip reasoning. them live, man. I know. I'm, Do a little I'm rearranging I'm, live. No, I'm going to stay with it. The door. Okay. I'm going to go with the door. Okay. And here's why. Season six, episode five, you find out the origin of Hodor. And I simply did not think that the show had another one of those for me. Interesting. I didn't think they had it in their pocket. I didn't think they had a moment where I was like sat back Absolutely floored and shocked. Yeah. Sat back on my couch and went, wow, I can't believe that one, that that happened. And mm -hmm. two, that no one saw it. Yeah, like <laughs> there's, you can, yes, you can go on the message boards and the forums and find like the stray one or two. Here's how Hodor became, you know, theories. Somebody out there positing that this is how it happened. But still, it was just an absolute fucking blindside. And in retrospect, and what makes it one of the great ones for me, in retrospect, just right there in front of your face in terms of like what it means. And so in that sense, 
I have to put it in my top five at number three for me. Bran also sees the creation of the Night King, which didn't matter as much as we thought it would. (laughs) (laughs) We lose Summer, which was honestly wasteful. Like, still not over. I am infuriated still when I watch how he goes down because Summer would, one, didn't need to die there. He could have just ran out with Bran and Mira and everybody. Just like he could pull the sled. You know, I've always, as you know, been devastated by this. And the only thing that I held on to was that he, something about the fact that he chose to sacrifice himself to save Bran felt very powerful, but also just, as as you said, I mean, they're still pursued. The Whites ultimately catch them and then Benjen saves them in in the next episode. But the way that in the ensuing episodes and seasons I tried to process it and and sift through my grief was while they're clearly saying that Bran can't, you know, especially when we see Bran so callously say farewell to Mira. Okay, well, they're telling us that Bran can't have these connections in his life, can't have these sources of love and companionship because the Three-Eyed Raven has to be totally alone apart and we have to be reminded time and again that Bran isn't in touch with anything that resembles humanity. But it's hard to feel that way now based on where Bran wound up being king and saying, yeah, why do you think I came all this way? Like, It's tough to, this episode in particular, to not think about the things that are reframed by the way it ended. But much like you said, with this episode, I do choose to revel in the possibilities that seem to be there in the moment. Mm -hmm. Bran going back in time and affecting the present. Yes. Or (laughs) affecting the past, the ink not being dry. That held enormous, enormous potential for the story. The ability to take it in all sorts of directions. Or was it dry because it was always dry? That's really fun to think about too. Or, you know... I also thought it was probably the riskiest thing they had ever done. Yeah. To introduce time travel is really a thing that in many cases just threatens to break your story, as J.K. Rowling would tell you, <laughs> in destroying the uh, the time turners before bringing them back for reasons unknown. Hashtag not canon. <laughs> <laughs> Shouts to the cursed child heads. But again, I, I was just floored by this reveal and was very emotionally affected by it. Yeah, we uh, we actually have a question coming up later about the three holy shit moments that George told Benioff and Weiss about. And so we'll save what we think the third one was for when we get to that question later. But just in case anybody doesn't know, in, in the context of what Jason's saying here about the shock of this, this moment, how Hodor became Hodor, was one of what the showrunners have framed as three holy shit moments. This and Shireen's death by burning at Stannis's command and a third that we will again discuss later and they have not revealed. I think the third one is that he's not going to write the other two books. (laughs) 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 But but I raise that just to say that the author of the story and the showrunners in charge of adapting that story and carrying it forth on our televisions also felt that way about the Hodor reveal, that it was that, carried that level of magnitude for people. I think also, you know, we talk so much with Hodor about how it made us think about what was still to come with what we would learn about Bran and the ramifications of his power. But I also really love it because of how it allows us to think about what led everybody to that moment. And especially as we continue to explore, and I think will forever, where this story sort of lands on the choice-destiny equation, something like when Bran and Mira and and Hodor and Summer arrive at the Three-Eyed Raven's Cave at the end of Season 4 before the benching in Season 5 and then the return in Season 6— 
Mira has that moment where she brings up Jojen and how he died. And Bloodraven says, in essence, you know, he knew and he came anyway. And as he's saying that, the camera lingers on Hodor. And it's always felt like this little Easter egg about what was to come about Hodor's, the course of his life having been determined by something that was outside of his control. So, yeah, it's a magnificent episode. Number two. Number two. What do you got? Kiss by Fire, which you already talked about beautifully. And every single thing you said about it, I cherish too. I guess I would just use Kiss by Fire as a impetus for making a larger point, which is that I find myself, when I think back on Game of Thrones as a whole now, really gravitating toward the quieter episodes, more so than the grand battles, which I am like maybe a little surprised by just because, you know, so many of the battle episodes and the huge set pieces and these television and cinematic achievements are things that we all talk about rightly as separating Game of Thrones from anything else that's ever been on our screens. But I just find myself like so hungry for returning to the moments where we just got to be with a person or two people or a group of people who were figuring out who they are, you know, and being with another person who could help unlock that for them in some way. And even though the Jamie Brand bath scene and the John Egret cave scene and even the hound barrack scene and the Rob Karstark execution, Arya's plea to Gendry to go with her to Winterfell, you know, the you wouldn't be my family, you'd be my lady scene. Those are all very, very different, but they all have that through line of somebody who has maybe felt really alone at a point in their life looking at another person and saying, can you change that for me? Or can you help me change that for myself? And it's just a really powerful thing that the show, when it was at its best, is able to do in a way that still kind of stuns and floors the all of us who love it so much. We also meet Shireen in this episode. Love her. And what an I always important am like, character. Oh, I, yeah, I can't believe she comes into the story that late on the yeah. show. But, you know, she's obviously a monumental figure in our hearts and then the story and Tywin arranging marriages. I mean, this episode is just every single scene Ugh. of it is so, so rich. And I miss Tywin to this day. What oh a incredible a villain, an absolute titan of history. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So Kiss by Fire is wonderful in every respect. And I I agree with you. The Jamie Brand bath scene remains an all-time Game of Thrones scene. And especially after what happened between John and Danny, I find the parallels between the John Danny relationship and the John Egret relationship devastatingly sad and tragic in a Shakespearean Greek, like almost life altering. (laughs) for us as people consuming the story, let alone John as the person experiencing it, way that makes returning to those moments with them together where they were still so full of hope and love and possibility, even though John always knew that he could never have it, that it could never last. Just so crushing. What's your number two? Do, 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 (laughs) do, do. Listen, we don't need to go over it again. Reigns of Castamere, I think it's the episode that more than anything cemented this show's reputation as must-watch television. And just a staggering episode (laughs) of television, one that left literally millions of people across the globe in absolute shock. I love it. (laughs) Truly tremendous. I miss Rob, I will say. He's man. (laughs) Attack, attack. Rob, (laughs) poor Rob. It's a dead man switch. To Lisa. 
Ravi. Uh, uh, very tough. Listen to oh. your direwolves, people. Oh. Forever young. <laughs> <laughs> that will haunt me. That will haunt me for the rest of my days. Reese Bolden. The young wolf. Forever young. <laughs> oh. Just psychotic moment. We have the same number one, so let's just chat about it together. The Winds of Winter. Yeah. Season six finale. The culmination of something that people who love this story have been waiting for since they encountered this story. The John Parentage reveal. It yeah. remains the single best moment in Game of Thrones history. And for me, my favorite moment in television history. The cut. The, we talk about this so much because it is perfect. It really is a perfect storytelling moment. The smash cut from baby John to adult John right before he's named King in the North. We had seen the beginning of the Tower of Joy sequence earlier in season three when Bran first travels to that memory to get the culmination of it, to see Ned and Lyanna there together, to see the bed of blood, Dawn resting against it, to hear the promise me Ned. I mean, it's the heartbeat of the story, the question of yeah. who John is. And yes. to get it at last, it's just it's like so perfect. Yeah. It's so perfect. And it's one of ultimately like a dozen iconic things that happen in this episode. This is also the first 20 minutes of this episode are Cersei blowing up the Sept, killing off a huge swath of the cast. Marjorie, High Sparrow, Loras, RIP to our dude, Mace. I hope he is singing opera in heaven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Planky Town. Planky Town. <laughs> the consequences of what Cersei does, obviously Tommen's suicide, but in terms of just Cersei, I mean, basically benched in season eight. So then you think back to this, the absolute peak of her villainy and the insight yeah. into not only what she was willing to do, but to getting you as a viewer to think about what a person, period, is capable of doing to try to achieve what they want. It's chilling. It is chilling. I think we, we often talk about the parallels between uh, and the similarities between Tywin and his children. Cersei takes a lot after Tywin in terms of her scheming. And the thing I really liked about this, about her blowing up the Sept, is it was so in line with just what we've come to know about her character, but also so surprising in, in its ruthlessness. You know, Tywin thought several moves ahead and was willing to kind of like move slowly, almost like a, at a glacial pace in order to mm -hmm. set up his moves. Whereas... Cersei waited for an opportunity and then attacked that opportunity with full force. Right. You know, whatever it was, she just overwhelmed her foes with the violence of her schemes. And that just was an absolute stunning move. And then, you know, the John Parentage reveal, you talked about the bed of blood and, and seeing Dawn mm -hmm. leaning against the bed and promise me, Ned, there is a certain thrill that happens when you see a favorite story of yours adapted into another medium. And that scene absolutely held that thrill. It's like all these things we've always wanted to see. The tower, you know, going into the tower, the bed of blood. What does Liana actually look like? I remember thinking, oh my God, that's, mm -hmm. that's her. There she is. This titanic figure who we've only kind of glimpsed the shadow of or seen her statue in the, in the crypts. It was just amazing to see her and to hear her talking. Just a riding really a horse into Winterfell in a very different memory and different setting, but in this, the yes. definitive moment of her life and the story. It was just amazing. You know, like here are all these things that we've always wanted to know about, to see, to, to witness firsthand. And in a lot of ways, we were like Bran. 
traveling into the past to see this thing and absolutely wrapped by it. It's a staggering hour of television from beginning to end. And the smash cut to John sitting at Winterfell is just magnificent. I get chills to this day. It's the second, the shot, the sequence that sums up why this story matters so much to us, I think. The way you just described it is, I think, so right and so perfect because in many ways what makes this such a towering achievement is not that it was, you know, in contrast to something like The Red Wedding or Ned's Beheading, it wasn't a shock. It was something that so many people, whether you came to the story, for to the show first, the books, however long you'd been thinking about it, so many people carried utter conviction that this was the answer, this was the truth. But to see it fully realized and confirmed at last— it just felt like finding out something that you'd always known was true about your own life. Yeah, there's there really is a different, you know, like people say, oh, that's basically confirmed. But R plus L equals J was as locked mm-hmm. as it could be without actually being confirmed. But there's still something so satisfying about seeing it. Yes, absolutely. About knowing that that is the case. And it just, I mean, this sounds like hokey. Rewards your faith in stories in a fundamental yes. way. I don't think that's hokey at all. I think that's exactly right. It's yeah. exactly right. And and this is a something to kind of think back on and remember that this was how we felt at the time yeah. and cherish the power that the story had over us. It was beyond the books. And so yeah. it was the moment where we said, oh my God, they can do this. They can yeah. do this. They, can, they do can actually make this happen. Like we talk a lot about the strength of season six. And that's why I think that it's unfair and not totally right when people say that, well, as soon as they got beyond the books, they lost it. Absolutely not fair. Yeah. Yeah, Season six was a masterpiece. A lot of other things happen in this episode. Danny heads west at long last. Arya kills Walder and feeds him fray pie. Not in that order, obviously. Sam arriving at the Citadel, Melisandre exiled, etc. The one other thing I want to mention about Cersei in the Sept, in addition to the score, the signature score, The Light of the Seven in this episode. This plot point for Cersei is one of the best instances in the entire series for us to think about prophecy and the impact of prophecy on the characters, especially because we have fewer and fewer moments as we move forward through to the conclusion of the story to think about how the show is grappling with this. But season five opens with us seeing Maggie the Frog's prophecy for Cersei. And we understand so fully how the decisions that she makes throughout her entire life are an effort to combat this sense of inevitability of predestination and what ends up happening in an effort to avoid it. She fulfills that fate. She is the source of that fate, ultimately, not some divine hand. It's her doing. Tommen's death is a direct result of an action that Cersei took, even though protecting her children is her primary ambition. And that is, obviously, whether or not you're sympathetic to Cersei, like, incredibly existentially unmooring and sad, it's also, again, this really forceful reminder of that idea about prophecy is the mule that kicks you in the head. You know, it's a nice thing to think about, but we see with so many of the characters, Melisandre, Cersei, plenty of others, how when they become enraptured with this idea of the prophecy that is in some way ingrained in their life, they ultimately end up being their own downfall. Yep. Great episode. All right, number two comes from Chelsea Peters Parkinson, who asks, what is the single most egregious loose end that the showrunners left hanging? (laughs) Just... Just like John left Ollie. One last Ollie reference. Smiley face. 
Chelsea, <laughs> Peters Parkinson, please DM us for oh my God. free binge mode merch. Because <laughs> an absolutely appalling and hilarious <laughs> kicker to your question. I am absolutely oh agog. Younger. Younger than Brad. Than Brad. <laughs> Is there one? Is there one that stands out most for you? Yeah. Speaking of who Ollie was younger than. Yeah. I have the same. To me, this is it. It's Brand's powers, period, for me. Yep. Same. The effects of not fleshing out what those things are were deleterious to the ending in just so many ways. It affected the way Brand being named King Mm -hmm. landed. It affected our understanding of the fight between humanity and the Night King. It affected what we know about or how we feel about the importance of John's parentage reveal. I mentioned this a bit, but Arya saying, what's west of Westeros? No one knows. And Bran being right there and not being like, oh, I'll go find out right now. (laughs) It's just one of those. It's one of those kind of like obvious not even that nerdy kind of like follow-ups that just should be ironed out. Should be ironed out. Brand could go find out. Literally could go. And I just think that, you know, for whatever reason, those things weren't done and and really adversely affected the power of the ending of the tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a handful of other things that I considered picking as my number one here. You know, why did the Night King refuse to engage in single combat with John three times? Ultimately, where did we land on the prince that was promised in Azurai? Did something change about John's feelings about his resurrection? What's up with Dario? Was every single child of the forest in the cave when it blew up? What was up with the voice that Varys heard? What do the faceless men want? Where are the reeds? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But where's the flame of truth? (laughs) Where's our girl? <laughs> but for every reason you just said, none of those other ones ultimately feel quite as weighty as the question of Brand's powers. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different aspects of it. You know, how, how long will he live? Bloodraven lived yes. for a really long time, especially with the matter that Tyrion raises of the succession and figuring out the next ruler after him. Is there another three-eyed raven in training somewhere? Does there need to be? We still don't even understand totally the prior station he held and the the Three-Eyed Raven's responsibility to society, let alone the compounding effect of the responsibility that Bran now carries as king. We just talked when we were talking about Hodor and the door, the question of can Bran change the past? Is the ink dry or will he drown if he stays too long, even though it's beautiful beneath the sea? You have a lot of evidence to interpret events, but we actually did not ever get definitive answers there. And then I think ultimately the biggest one for me is the question of the future. And can he fully see it? Now, it is canon. We know we have a lot of evidence that he can see some of the future, you know, seeing the sept blow up, the dragon wings. Even well before that, seeing the sea come to Winterfell as a premonition of Theon's attack on the castle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all the comments that he makes to various people throughout season eight, the looks that he's giving to Danny. But does that mean he can see everything at any time in the future? Does he have control over it? Or does it just come to him in flashes? How does he view his responsibility to use that information? Like All important questions that needed to be answered or, or at least tackled in some kind of way. Yes. And the thing is, like, okay, why? Well, what is 
and I don't want to overstate things and say it's the main talking point after the series finale, but certainly I think one of the most surprisingly dominant talking points from people, this is brand evil question that's surfacing out there. Because for a lot of people, they're looking at this and they're saying, well, wait a minute. Yes. Look at how Bran's looking at Danny when she arrives at Winterfell. Does he see what happens at the Battle of King's Landing and allow it to unfold? And if so, is he the most evil character on the show? So here's my, not even a counterpoint, but here's my response to that to try to explain why understanding his powers more is so crucial. Maybe the answer to that is yes, he did see it and he did know. But also, again, to return, and I know I sound like a broken record with this, but I think it's a really important thing, not only in life, but in a fantasy story to consider the choice destiny equation. Maybe the way that he thinks about his power and the way that he views his, the weight that he carries, his burden, his responsibility, is that he actually has an obligation not to act on what he knows, not to dictate the course of events, to allow the agency and the free will of the people whose futures he sees to still matter. It's up to you then to decide whether that's evil, right? But at least we would know. At least we would have insight into how he views not only the use to which he can put his powers, but why his powers matter and the effect that they could have not only on him, but in the people of the realm. Like, we have none of that. We have none of it. All we got was a bizarre, sudden personality shift from I'm like only going to say a couple words to I'm making jokes at the dragon pit. And it's just crucial. It's crucial, 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 crucial information. And we don't have it. You think about any of the depictions of people with abilities, people with powers, people with kind of beyond human skills that you've encountered in books and movies and TV. And there's always kind of like a leveling up. There's an arc to it. You know, mm-hmm. Neo in the Matrix kind of not knowing how to do bullet time until the very end. You might actually make the argument that he became too powerful at the end of that movie. Luke showing up at Return of the Jedi being able to force choke people like after these kind of like halting fits and starts mm-hmm. training that he had over the first two movies. Yo, did you see the the blue and green milk that they're going to be selling at the disgusting. new Star Wars no, I'm not, theme I'm park? I'm fucking chugging that shit. I will only drink it straight from it tit. That's the only time I (laughs) So, when Bran first acquired these powers, um, in one of the after the episodes, (laughs) as a way to kind of deflect these questions, well, why doesn't Bran do this? Why doesn't Bran go and look? Why doesn't Bran just tell them what's... The showrunner said, well, it's kind of like he's still indexing all this information. He's struggling with this vast download and doesn't know necessarily how to control it yet. He doesn't know how to go to a specific time in the past to see. Okay, great. Obviously, something changed by the time we get to, you know, the end of the story. But what? Obviously, the, the ability to travel through time and affect what you see there is extremely powerful with impacts that could possibly alter only everything you know about the story, literally Mm -hmm. only everything, every choice, every decision, every crucial moment, you have to ask yourself, you literally have to ask yourself, did Bran allow this to happen or make it happen? Right. And then you pull back and say, okay, well, why did Bloodraven choose to show him these things? Yes. What was the motivation there? What was the responsibility there? When Bran returns from being marked by the Night King, Blood Raven, and we, we've talked about this a lot in terms of thinking about the Three-Eyed Raven and to, to your theory as like almost like a time guardian. Yeah. 
was not surprised that that happened. And in fact, it certainly plays as a confirmation, a arrival at a point that he knew was coming. And in those precious moments, and he's already taken Bran to the Tower of Joy at that point. He's already had that look of almost forlorn dread and despair on his face as he watched Bran call out to Ned and Ned turn around. This is season six, episode three. And then back in episode five in the door, what does he use those final moments with Bran to do? Does he say, go get a head start on leaving? Mm-hmm. No. He says, you, we, need to, we need to study up in a hurry. And he takes him to Winterfell. He takes him back to his family. The things that he has shown him are all about who the Starks are, obviously how the Night King was created as well, but primarily who the Starks are and then how does John fit into that? Why? So that he will tell John why to incite the ensuing events. You know, I pray that we get more insight and I, I have to assume that we will in the books into what the characters are thinking as they act in this fashion. So yes, we are we are on the same page. I think a lot of people are on that page with us. Number three. Number three. Danny Munso asks, what do you think the third and final holy shit moment was that Benny Off and Weiss said George told them about Danny's death or something smaller? Mal, what do you think it is? So I don't know, obviously. I like that they're not telling us because a lot of book readers were pissed when they confirmed that Hodor and Shireen's death were things that George had told them because that meant for sure that those things were going to happen in the books, which meant, you know, you know, huge things that are going to happen in the books before you've read that part of the books. Obviously, with everything else that happened on the show, there's a little bit of an element of, well, this is probably going to happen in the books, but maybe not. Maybe it'll be a different thing. And that extends even to the ending where Georgia said, yeah, I gave him the broad stroke. Some of it will be the same. Some of it will be different. So what could it be? I think the primary contenders are John killing Danny. That seems like the most likely. Also, Bran becoming king. <laughs> seems like it had the potential to generate a holy shit response based on how they had thought about Bran to that point. Though, though maybe not, actually, because if we're talking about the time frame that we think we're talking about, Bran was really primary in the story yeah. at that point still. So I'm going to actually remove that from the list. I think that that would not have generated that response from them at that time. So I think they've got to be Danny-centric. John killing Danny or Danny burning King's Landing. But again, Danny burning King's Landing, as we've discussed at length, heavily foreshadowed in the books and also in the show. So it seems like, as we eliminate some of these other possibilities, unless it's something that we're just not thinking of because it's maybe not as major, it seems like John killing Danny is the most logical do you think there's a another possibility no i i think it's got to be those when you think about holy shit i mean you're talking about something that fundamentally kind of shakes your story to the core and i certainly think john killing danny and brand becoming king are the two uh danny burning king's landing i think is a thing that in a lot of ways you expected to happen in some form or fashion so i think it's probably john killing danny and listen like if you look at Kit Harrington's reaction on the last watch. He was actually holy shitted. Yeah. All right, number four. Jasmine asks, and we got a lot of questions about spinoffs, a lot. What would you guys rather have? A Game of Thrones sequel or prequel show? So you want to go in the past or you want to go into the future, bud? I am going to reframe the question completely, I think. (laughs) I think our (laughs) opinions on sequel versus prequel are reasonably well-known. This is a huge world. What's Uh going on in Ashai? What's happening in Essos? Yeah. Summer Isles, what's going on there? Noth? Nice beaches, but what else? You know, 
Grey Worm out there just murdering people in the streets, I assume. I think that this is a vast world. And listen, clearly, clearly, this vast world is going to get mined for additional content in the coming years for the rest of our lives. Uh Um, And I'm just going to put it out there. I think that there's a lot of very interesting things happening in the Far East and the Summer Isles and west of Westeros, these various other far-flung places that have no obvious direct connection to the goings-on in Westeros and even West Essos. And I'd just love to find out about it. Ashai has this dark and ominous reputation as the land of shadowbinders and the farthest east that you can go on the map. And man, I want to know more about it. I want to know more about what goes on there. Do you have a preference for when in time you'd be there or does it not matter? You just want to be there. Yeah, anytime. Like the Alyssa Farman story is a great one. Mm-hmm. Does she manage to get to a shy by going all the way west? And if so, let's see it. Let's see a shy through the eyes of Alyssa Farman or even uh, through the sea snake, the first person officially to go there. That kind of like world traveling idea it could be in the past, could be in the present, could be a future story is just really appealing to me. I want to know all about that stuff. I thought Sea Snake was what Danny called John's penis on the sex book. Hello. No? Hello. <sighs> ah, back when they were just young and in love, unknowingly relatives fucking on a boat. Those were the days. My answer, unsurprisingly, to this question is that I want it all, Jason. I want it all. I'm a greedy motherfucker and I want I it all. It. I want to keep exploring the world. I don't want to leave it. I want to go back to it. I would love a handful of prequels. I would love to see Aegon's Conquest. I'm excited about the Long Night show that is not called The Long Night. Sorry, George. I would still love to see Robert's Rebellion. Dance of the Dragons would be dope. Give me Duncan Egg. Like I, I, want, I agree with I want all, all of, of that, it. by the way. Wholeheartedly yeah, agree with I, I want all of it. And you know what? I want to know <laughs> what happens next for the people we just left behind. Like, I want to know if John is going to become King Beyond the Wall and what the rest of his life is going to be like. like the, the prospect of never, I'm getting really sad, the prospect of never learning another thing about John's life like kills me. I can't even fathom that. I want to know what Arya's adventures are like across the Sunset Sea. I want to know if Drogon laid eggs. No, I want to know all of it. That's a great one. Hey, Fall of Valeria is also like one. Oh, man. Yes. Yes. The rise and fall of the Valerian Empire. Give it to me. I love that. Give us old Valeria. That would be fucking incredible. Oh, okay. Next. Dimua321. If you could add three characters that only appeared in the books of the show to fix or improve things, which three would they be? Can I get some love for young Griff and Val? Oof. My first pick here, I'm cheating and I'm putting two characters together because I don't like playing by the rules and because, uh, you know, it's connected. Ariane and Quentin Martell. Give us the proper Dorn plot. You know, we could talk about both of these characters for an hour easily and not even begin to scratch the surface of what makes them important to book readers and to the book plot. I think the simplest way to say it here is just that the absence of those characters sucked so much of the air out of the impact of yes. Dorne and of Doran and of the Martells as a, obviously Oberyn on the show as a power player, but the Martells and Mass as a seismic force in the realm that was working to get shit done. 
in the shadows, that snake in the fucking grass. I love that shit. That's it is such a disappointment, man, because that is one of the coolest things that develops in the books is this idea that, you know, after the tragedy of what happened to Elia Martel, Doran has been working this mm-hmm. whole time to yep. return the Targaryens to the throne, take revenge on their enemies. And that while it seemed that Prince Doran was old, out of touch, gout-stricken, sitting in his wheelchair, immobile. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Right. He has been moving much like Tywin behind the scenes, writing right. letters, making moves, making right. chess moves. And, and that, the version on the show that we get is literally— He's doing nothing. When Ilaria says weak men will never rule Dorne again, she's validated in saying that because he is a character on the show who has been reduced to— Basically, the perception that in the books is false. <laughs> That's the reality on the show. And so we should say, I guess, that, that Ariane and Quentin are his two eldest children. Tristane is also in the books, but that's his youngest child, not as on, on the show, his heir. And the other thing about, you know, Quentin, obviously, is just... Uh, tragic figure. <laughs> tragic figure. Poor, poor, doomed. poor young Poor, poor, poor young Quentin. Doomed to suffer greatly. <laughs> I love him. But, I mean, Ariane is... Yeah, she's incredible. One of the strongest female characters in the books and a force for feminism and female empowerment that the show, not that other characters, you know, like Sansa and Arya and Brienne and, and Danny and Cersei and plenty of others don't give us that. They do. But, you know, a ruler like Duran saying, my daughter is my heir. Like, that mattered. That really mattered. That's an incredible thing that happens in the books. And she is this brilliant, beautiful, fascinating, engaging figure. And I just just miss both of them so much. You had both of them on your list, too. Yeah, that's a great point. And it also is one that is important for understanding how Dorne is just so culturally different. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that's part of the the tragedy of Dorne's depiction in the shows is like, we got some of that through Oberyn, through his speechifying about, we don't do this in Dorne, we don't kill children in Dorne, we don't, et cetera, et cetera. But it was so much richer and deeper than that. And the cool thing, you know, we often talk about the world building. Why is it different? Because it flows from the specific and particular history that Dorne has and their ability to hold out against Targaryen rule for almost two centuries. Uh Um, They were able to preserve that cultural heritage in a really important way. And we just didn't get to explore that, which is sad. Yeah, I had Arianne and Quentin as well. Uh I just think those two obviously were just so important for understanding what Dorne was doing this whole Uh time after the flower of their royal pride was cut down, tragically murdered. You know, this region that's known for independence, for independent spirit, for the subtlety of their violence and their moves has been seemingly doing nothing. And then we find out in the show, actually, yes, they've been doing nothing. Uh And then Young Griff, as you said, listen, I think we both subscribe. We both have Young Griff. You know, there was a Reddit thread that popped up Oh, my God, I loved this. Yeah, and I forget who the person was, the Redditor that put it in. But there's a Reddit thread that popped up as the series was winding down saying how actually Young Griff, the decision to not include Young Griff was the one that kind of 
most influenced the direction of the end point of the show. And it was very compelling. Young Griff would have added this extra pressure on Danny. She would have to deal uh-huh. with this pretender, possibly a pretender, that was garnering support, was winning victories. And now you don't have the Danny is too strong for Cersei problem because she's got to split her forces. She's got to deal with these other things. You don't necessarily have the John Danny issue right away, or you at least plant the seed in her mind where she's worried about pretenders to the throne. And maybe that is the thing that pushes her ever more towards towards savageness and barbarity. Uh, You see the Golden Company for more than 14 seconds? (laughs) Yeah, that would have been freaking great. (laughs) (laughs) Also, John Connington is then in the story too, which means Jorah never gets grayscale, though I guess the ramifications of that are are hard to contemplate given that that's what led him to Sam and back to Danny. But, you know, that too. Uh, The thread is, I just found it, Posted by UBoss92, and the header is 99% of the show's problems are due to the omission of Young Griff slash Fagon. Check it out. I think that that the particular calculation is probably a little hyperbolic, (laughs) but I agree with the diagnosis. Here's the other thing. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, actually, if you had the same experience as a reader, but when I first got to Young Griff, I was like, no. I don't want this and I reject it, right? Same. Same. I was like, God, this is fucking annoying. And you're you're just so invested in Danny's quest at that point, even though all of the foreshadowing is in the back of your mind looming. But George, like any master storyteller, is able to win you over so quickly and so fully. You don't have to root for Griff or Connington or anyone else tied up in their plot. But you see that it matters. You see that it's going to be important. You see that you need to pay attention. And that is, like, I'm just always in awe when somebody is able to do that. I think I've mentioned this before, but I would cite, I won't spoil the plot points of this, but Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is being very emblematic of this, where you get into the story and you fall fully into it and you love the characters and you're so invested. And then something changes. And you're like, I don't want this. I don't want change. I want to be in this exact space that I just found myself loving so much. And then you fall in love with it all over again. And then it happens again. And you're like, I don't want this. And by the end of that, you're fully invested again. Like, it's just such an amazing trick that George is able to pull. And I don't I don't say trick to diminish it. It's like, there are people out there who think that young Griff is actually Aegon Targaryen, Rhaegar's baby. There's a huge swath of people who are utterly convinced that he's a fake. But... It's just an amazing thing to introduce that late into the books and have it connect to that many primary figures in a way that really matters. He's fake. I agree that he's fake. And the thing, I I had the exact same response, which was, oh my God, here we go. (laughs) Like, really, another feigned Targaryen, we're going to do this. The thing that won me over was the depiction of Connington. I love it, And it really gave you entree into... You know, it's like something Viserys says early in the in the books and also in the show. Oh, they're weaving dragon banners and they can't wait for mm-hmm. a return. Yeah. That's such a dream and it's obviously so naive. And at the same time, there were many, many, many people whose fortunes were directly linked to the Targaryens and who lost everything because of this. This is a and great point. you get entree into that emotion through Connington failing his prince, of failing his king. The fact that he's just constantly flagellating himself about things he could have done if I had only have leveled 
the city in my search for Robert Baratheon. I could have caught him. Mm-hmm. I could have ended yep. this rebellion and my Battle prince would, and my prince would be alive right now and I would have a home. And it, that feeling of, I, I just want to get home. Yes. And erase the failures and put this boy on the throne. Is he like, is he even really who he says? Connington is so blinded by his own need to erase his past mistakes that he doesn't even, I don't know if he actually has thought about it that much. Like, does he even care? He's like got a virulent disease and he's willing to expose everyone to it <laughs> in order, in yeah. order yep. to have that chance to erase this mistake that he's yeah. made. And yep. that feeling just opens up another level of the story for me. And that's how George won me oh, over for that. And man. I just think that is kind of quietly a really important plot development. In oh, episode. man, I, I love the way you just put that. That's so right. It is quietly one of the most potent portraits of how regret can shape the rest yeah. of your life. It's great. And then there's also just like, okay, well, the question of is he going to infect like all of Westeros with grayscale? <laughs> what, what happens there? What are you thinking about, guy? <laughs> Come on. Um, <laughs> Really tough look for my guy, John Connington, there. Uh, Since I cheated and put the Martell kids together as number one and then had Griff number two, my number three is Lady Stoneheart, obviously. I mean... Stony. You know, you miss the Stony presence. First of all, because of the the way that the Barrack plot unfolds so differently on the show, obviously, in the books, he gives his life to restore... I think everybody, we said spoiler warning on the top, so we don't need to say it again, but this is a huge book spoiler in case you don't know it. Barrett Tondarian passes the kiss of life, flame yeah. of life, to Catelyn Stark to revive her. Barrett dies. He's out of the story at that point, and Cat is reborn as a figure who in almost no way resembles the woman that she was. She is reanimated and driven by one thing, one force, vengeance period, for her family. And she is a savage monster. She ends up leading the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood's role becomes quite different from there on in the story. You know, there's like a horrifying interaction that she has much later with Brienne, where she believes that Brienne basically betrayed her because Brienne is carrying Oathkeeper. I mean, there are so many things we could go through, but she is this looming specter of dread in the story. And then also there are these other subtler elements of it, like the way that when her body was in the river, tossed into the river in the first place, Arya through Nymeria, through the wolf stream that still connects Arya to her wolf, knows that the body is there and Nymeria pulls it out of the river. It's just like, it, it's, uh, it's chilling. And she also just physically is like in tatters. You know, her yeah, she's been clawing her, at her face in the right, moments her, at the Red Wedding. Her neck before. is just a yeah. ruin, you know. Like, she can't speak because of the yeah. ruin of her neck. Oh, it's definitely one of the more like horror elements of the pure horror elements of the story, but it's very important. Some other people I considered, including Victorian Greyjoy. I really miss no, him. Yeah he's, yeah, he's great. Especially given the way the Euron character plays out on the show. Just really could have used Victorian there. Edric Storm, Dark Star. I mean, there's so uh, many characters we could name here, but I... Eddie Storm, baby. Eddie Storm. All right. Next. Jack Daddy asks, <laughs> assuming book six and seven will be finished. hmm Yep. Will George allow the fan backlash over season seven and eight to affect where he takes the story? So this is obviously purely speculative. We have no way of knowing. Extremely Ethan Hawke in first reformed voice who can know the mind of God. But what do you think? think? What's your sense of this? I think that it is impossible as a human being, mm-hmm. listen, as a, as a person who writes, right? Putting your imagination out into the world for people to judge and to consume. 
there's a certain level of kind of like empathy that is necessary to create those worlds. You have to be able to put yourself in the in shoes of people who don't exist and, and yep. fully live in their desires and their fears, even if those things don't comport with what you think. And I think it's impossible, absolutely humanly impossible for George to not be affected by the way the ending was depicted in the show and received. It would take a superhuman level of compartmentalization that I just don't think anyone has. He's affected by it and he has to be. He must be. Yeah. And there's another way to look at it as you just got a free look. You know, it's kind (laughs) of like, you know, it's kind of like stealing pitches. You know what I mean? Like you got a free look. Okay, that works. That doesn't. That might work. Maybe if I tweak this, it could get a better response. I, I just think it's impossible. Make a baseball reference. I know I do it only for you. I just think <laughs> that it's impossible for him to not be affected. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I would be surprised if something that he had always been working toward as a primary endgame plot point changed. Like, for example, the bulk of the viewing public is like, brand the broken? What the fuck? Then you have the whole contingent of book readers who says, much as we have. I totally see this happening in the book and how it makes sense in the book. Bran as a book character is very emblematic of these core fantasy ideals. Yes, I think this is going this way. It just didn't play properly on the show. I don't see George saying, I'm not going to make Bran king now because people didn't like it or were confused by it in the show. I, I assume that he would probably say, I can't wait to explain this to people. I can't wait to show them why this makes sense and why I think that this is the right thing to do. I think maybe a lot of the other things along the way there, smaller things, could change. And as you noted, even if you end up in the same spot, the way you get there could be different or or you you factor in some of the feedback, some of the notes of confusion and say, I'll make sure that this is clearer. The other thing, though, is that, well, two other things. One, he has said that some of the end will be the same, but some of it will be different. So it's not like he had been planning on completely replicating this. I mean, obviously, he has a million characters and plot points in the book that just aren't on the show. So it will be different in some way, inevitably. You know, he wrote a blog post after the finale, and he posed, you know, this, okay, I know you're all wondering, will the ending be different? He said, quote, well, yes, and no, and yes, and no, and yes, and no, and yes. Classic George shit right there. I love classic. it. I'm working in a very different medium than David and Dan never forget, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. It's 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 worth reading. It's quite an answer. And then he he at the end of a very long sequence that again I encourage you to read. He says, Booker show, which will be the real ending? It's a silly question. How many children did Scarlett O'Hara have? How about this? I'll write it. You read it. Then everyone can make up their own mind and argue about it on the internet. How about this? The first thing actually has to happen, though. I know. Oh, George, I believe. But the other thing that I was going to say, to that point, Jay, about, you know, he's got to actually write him. That's the other thing, of course, is that, say this with no disrespect, we're rooting for George, we love him, we believe. He clearly doesn't know everything that's going to happen yet, because if he did, he would have written it. We have returned to this well many times in describing why George has not written the ending. He's on a journey of discovery still. If he knew, he would write it. Mm Mm-hmm. George, we believe in you. Next. Mitch McGee, if you were to design a Game of Thrones theme park similar to the Harry Potter parks, what would it have? What would be the main attractions? Fermented goat's milk instead of butterbeer, et cetera. You go first. Uh, My Game of Thrones theme park would be exclusively a a multi-tiered brothel experience. Yes, the same. Same. (laughs) You enter through Molestown. No. That would be a a good, like, adult pass version. Oh, it's all, by the way, it's all. It's all adult, adult pass. pass. Yeah, there's no <laughs> children's park of this. That's just like the water yeah. gardens. 
Yeah. That's it. You take your water kids gardens. to the water gardens and that oh, it's just a pool. Yeah. Water garden and water park is a really great idea. I love that. That would be cool to just build the map of Westeros and have the park be like exploring all of the different kingdoms and the different regions. And like if you, you know, lose something and you have to go far into the abyss to the lost and found, that's like maybe when you visit the Iron Islands. I would definitely want to have a wall there. You know, climbing the wall seems like it would be a really fun theme park experience. Certainly flying a dragon. Obviously, you know, we, uh, we've we had the, the pleasure of going to the Wizarding World and the Escape from Gringotts dragon experience and also the Hogwarts trip that you take where you're at one part of it. This is a different ride. Simulating like Quidditch and flying on a broomstick. I mean, that's just really fun. So getting the Game of Thrones dragon version of that would be super cool. I would love some sort of VR experience where you get to simulate warging into a dire wolf. I think would be obviously incredible. I just think walking around would be the coolest thing. You know, my my favorite part of Wizarding World is just being in Diagon Alley, being in Hogsmeade, looking at the buildings and being so overcome with emotion because it feels like you've actually fallen into the world that you fall into every time you read a page from the story. So I think just being able to walk through King's Landing, to walk through Winterfell and Wintertown, you know, to walk through Bravos. Give us Bravos. Let us go into the House of Black and White. Let me fucking peel off a face if I want to. Like, it would just be so incredible to get to walk through the world. I like all the ones you have. I'm going to add, so I also have Climb the Wall. Let me add a couple. Red Wedding Quickie Marriages, kind of like those... <laughs> Kind of like those Las Vegas get married like in an hour oh, man. things. Yeah. I think if you have the red wedding quickie marriage, wow. uh, it's really not a ride, but it's just in the light like of a, the seven or the whole thing in the light of the seven. You walk up, oh gods, in front of a weirwood tree. What are we going for here? No, no, it's you walk in and there are actors playing the phrase in the Starks. Oh my you God. dress up as Robin Talisa. You go in. And I know that Edmure is the one that gets married, but you go in and you get married and it takes 10 minutes. And at the end of it, you're all fake murdered <laughs> as part of it. I love it. The Frey Pie Challenge, which Ooh. is like kind yeah. of like an eating contest where you have to eat as many pies with fingernails. Inside of it looks like human body parts, but they're obviously <laughs> not, but they're molded. It's like soy molded to look like human body parts and eyes and stuff. And you got to mm, eat those. Delicious. I had fray pie on my food list. Yeah. The, uh, the make the eight challenge. Just what is it? Can you do it? Can you make yeah. it? You have like 30 minutes to make the eight. I love VR. So I'm thinking the VR project pain challenge. <laughs> Wield the the weapon oh of the greatest God. swordsman in in Westeros's history. Is the twist that you realize you don't have to pay at the end of it? You get your money back for your your well, entry I mean, into no, the park. But that, that is the challenge. Can you <laughs> can you wield the weapons of Podrick Payne, the sword and the tongue, the fingers? Can you wield those things in such a way as to not have to pay at the end? I think that that is what makes the VR challenge important. Oh, my God. Inspired stuff. So those are my big ones. What about a shared experience with your your buddy for the day where, you know, keep bathroom lines quick. So you're going, you're relieving yourself. Maybe you have to take a shit in the middle of the day. You're eating a lot of stuff from our, our various establishments, from three-fingered hobs, et cetera, which we'll get to in a minute. And you're motivated to get out of there quickly. Otherwise, your partner shoots you with a crossbow. Oh, wow. That seems like a good shared experience. Uh, what else? How about maester training, specifically potion making? Oh, you know, let's see. Can you whip up milk of the poppy? 
Do you know the difference between the Tears of Lease and the Strangler? Let's find out. That would be fun. I think a fun wrinkle for this theme park, just across the park, is all of the bathroom stall toilets don't have locks on them. And <laughs> as you're just the men's. And as yeah. you're sitting there, a actor dressed as Tyrion could come in and shoot you with the Nerf crossbow while you're yeah. shitting. Yes, absolutely. What do you think? That's what I'm saying. What do you think do about it. that? That's what I'm just saying. Let's do it. Keep keep the lines moving quickly in the back. What about, uh, I, I think that Y'all also, know son of mine. Yeah, no, and then, no, no they my, shoot you and then you look at them and you say, I respect that. I respect that. <laughs> uh, <gasps> obviously incredible merch possibilities in so general. Many. I think archery training Maybe, you know, you get to train with a master at arms, blunt edge swords, little little uh, sword play. Not the kind that you mentioned with Pod earlier. I burned my daughter alive and all I got was this damn t-shirt. <laughs> oh, the merch potentials are endless. That's a good yeah. one. We should make that shirt, actually. Yeah. That's a great one. Food and drink possibilities. I mean, I think our establishments oh would, God. it goes without saying that they would serve all 77 courses from the Purple Wedding. Hot Pies Wolf Bread would be a featured item. Oysters, clams, and cockles. Oh, delicious. No refrigeration, but that's fine. On a hot summer day. You just want it. Just been sitting on a cart. What about our drinks? The Imp's Delight. We're going to finally give Tyrion his wine label. Sour mare's milk, fermented goat's milk, giant's milk. We're going to have a full suite of milk offerings. The the giant's milk is going to be incredible. Obviously, mother's milk. Just directly from. (laughs) There should be actresses that play Lysa Aaron. Yes. And you should just be able to be like, I'll have 16 ounces of breast milk, please. And she just comes up and like pumps it out into like a jug. Incredible stuff. You could wear it like in one of those hats with the two straws. <laughs> and the hat is shaped like a boob? Yeah, no, two boobs. There's two boobs on either side of the hat. Amazing stuff. I was also going to offer, you know, ale, iced milk, spiced wine, but I don't think we need much I like more that. than the breast what about milk about The moon door uh, free fall. Oh, my God. Incredible. Like is it, is it a jump. bungee jump? I guess it would have to be a bungee. Yeah, you just, like, get thrown through the moon door. Oh, my God. That's a great idea. It's a great idea. Come at us. We're ready for this. <laughs> this sounds fun. We should build it. Okay, we're going to go rapid fire here through the rest of them. Our next question comes from Missy Cortez. So, all of those mentions about succession and children, which seemed directed at Danny last season, are we to assume? They were laying the groundwork for Bran being the ruler. It feels a lot like dangled plotline for the sake of drama speculation to me. But maybe it was to get everyone, Tyrion, mostly primed for the idea of Bran. It's a great question. I think we have the same answer here. We have the same answer, which is clearly, clearly many, many things changed in the midst of production of seasons six, seven, and perhaps even eight. It just is kind of inconceivable that you plant those seeds about Danny's ability to bear children and not have that pay off in any kind uh-huh. of particular way. You can't tell me that there isn't significant Golden Company footage somewhere on the yeah. roof floor. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, Absolutely. stuff changed. Stuff changed. Yeah. Maybe they realized they couldn't do it well with a compressed timeline and because there were so many other pregnancies already, you know, Gilly obviously revealed to be pregnant, Cersei's pregnancy is a central plot point. Maybe they just decided that this was too dark on top of Danny's impending turn and John killing her, though. I mean, again, Talisa is stabbed in her pregnant belly multiple times at the Red Wedding. It's not. And and Cersei is crushed beneath rocks while pregnant. So I I don't know that that would be the reason. But yeah, I agree with you. It definitely feels like something changed here. What's next? Chelsea Peters Parkinson, you can change two things about the final season. One thing because it made you too sad in a 
quote, I wish that imaginary character was still alive in their imaginary world way. And one thing, because you think the change you would make would vastly improve that very uneven final showing from our beloved Game of Thrones. What two things do you change? Parenthetical, if you want to add a handicap, Mal can't bring Jorah back to life <laughs> so she can marry him and Jason can't save Kyburn so he can mimic him forevermore. I reject this parenthetical. <laughs> I want Mallory to lie with Jorah for the rest of her days. I want that too. I'm glad we're on the same page. That's great. <laughs> okay, my because it made me too sad pick. Uh, yeah. Obviously... You know, I want John to have an emotional farewell with Ghost at Winterfell, obviously. I mean, again, I, I've said this a million times. The fact that they ultimately end up together is wonderful and heartening. It does not change the fact that the nature of that farewell in episode four was wrong and fundamentally missed something about the bond between those characters. I would also pick here Jamie explaining himself to Brienne and being kinder to her when he left her. Because even if you get to the point where you say, okay, he doesn't think he deserves this kind of life. He tried as hard as he could. He has to be back with Cersei at the end. I don't believe that the Jamie who we saw make the progress that he made over the course of eight seasons wouldn't have cared how Brienne felt in that moment. So that would be my, because it made me too sad, change. And then my pick for improving the final season would just be all under the umbrella of the key moments regarding John's parentage going differently. You know, us seeing Sansa and Arya respond to learning the truth of who he is. The people who are in the dragon pit advocating for him to be king. Like, I can't believe that didn't happen. And then, you know, of course, as we've discussed so much, John himself formally renouncing his claim after Danny's death. Yes, he said time and time again before, I don't want it. But after, abdicating his claim to the throne and sending himself North. I'd also put, you know, more brand explanations and more time before and after Danny's turn into that bucket, but we've talked about those so much. What about you? What are your two tiers there? You know, I kind of combine with all both my answers, I'm combining things. So my it makes me too sad is Jamie, much the same way. I don't necessarily buy his return to Cersei so soon after seeing Night of the Seven Kingdoms and Brienne finally uh, being together. And I do think that there's, you know, you want to talk about what I would change to make it better. Here's how I would change that to make that work. You know, obviously they need Jamie to die in King's Landing. Okay. So Jamie knights Brienne, they fall in love, or at least they finally manifest their love and they're together. And now you kill two birds with one stone. You need to bring Jamie south. And you also need Danny to become more brutal and evil. Mm-hmm. Danny says, okay. We're going to attack King's Landing. You know all the secrets of King's Landing. You're coming with us. You're going to help us do it. And that's how you get Jamie to King's Landing. That's how you get Jamie into the Red Keep. Mm-hmm. Basically, at Sword Point, forced to do it because of Danny's desire to take this city. That's what turns Tyrion against her. Blahzy, blahzy, blah. I love it. I love it. Next, Zach Klitzman. Wow. Asks, what are the top three scenes that were implied but not shown in season eight that you wish were included? Jay, I think we have the same list, or at least a very similar list. Let's just tackle these together. Number one, Sansa and Arya learning about Jon's parentage. I mean, it's for every— We're on record (laughs) at length about why this is important, and I think the fact that the show kind of relied on our imaginations to Mm -hmm. fill in the blanks there is— Borderline malpractice. Yeah. The question of who John is is paramount to the story for many, many reasons and many people. And 
the core of that is this matter of identity and the family you choose and who you are and them saying you're still our brother. Like, we just need to, we need to see that. Yeah. Number two, and I think we felt this at the time and now in hindsight, more so than ever, given it's insane. <laughs> Tyrion ultimately nominating Bran to be king, the conversation that we don't see between Tyrion and Bran, that fireside chat <sighs> before the battle of Ice and Fire, like, what happened? What, what transpired in that conversation? Literally, what did they talk about? I mean, we have to assume that Bran told Tyrion basically everything about his life, and that's what allowed Tyrion to say, for example, the line about you will fly, which he says at the dragon pit, and there's absolutely no reason that he would know that otherwise. Bran told him all about who he is, I guess. It would have been great to see that, not only because we would understand better how Tyrion came to think that Bran would be the right choice here, other than the I don't really want any more line that we get in episode four, but from what that would have shown us about Bran, about, again, how he thinks about his life and his journey. We just so badly missed that. And then, again, we talked about this a lot in our finale pod, but I think our next one is just literally everything that happened between John killing Danny and the dragon pit sequence. So basically, the moment when the screen goes black that splits the two halves of the finale, it feels like three full episodes of television should have been there. (laughs) Like... Not just a scene, but hours of plot development. Hours How and did, hours. Everything with Grey Worm and the Unsullied, everybody who came down and or up or over to King's Landing who wasn't there, everything that happened with John being taken yeah. prisoner, Tyrion's, uh, all the stuff he'd been thinking about in his cell. I mean, every single thing. We got none of it. I would add one more quick one, which is just something of what was Varys doing in these mm-hmm. early episodes? Like, he was brought over specifically to advise and to be, you know, the kind of intelligence arm of Danny's government in waiting. And it wasn't until he decides to move against Danny that we get an inkling that he's doing anything. So what was he doing all that time? Yeah, that's a good one. I also, this is a, a small one, but I really would love to have seen the conversation between Brienne and Sansa about Brienne ending up. I think it's incredible that she's Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, but she was sworn to Sansa and Sansa's yeah. now a ruler in her own right. So how did Brienne end up in... King's Landing instead of in Sansa's service. And then, I, honestly, just like anything else about the Golden Company to make us understand why that Oh was my God, the Golden Company! It's worth including in the show. <laughs> I think as we get farther from the show, certain things will get better, certain things will remain the same, certain things may get worse, and I think the Golden Company will only get worse. It is I, insane! Yeah, I totally agree. We had two seasons of setup about the Golden Company, and they got washed in five seconds. <laughs> Literally five seconds. The scene I want is the scene where Harry Strickland goes and speaks to all the elephants in Essos and says, I promise you, it's not worth joining us. We're going to be gone in the second the dragon fire hits. Don't come. <laughs> Why even hire an actor to be Harry Strickland? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, next. Will Owsley, one of the highlights of the season was some of the beautiful cinematography. What was your favorite shot of the season? I think mm. far and away, the two dragons. Yes, that's my Above the clouds mm-hmm. in the moonlight, that kind of blue Gorgeous. lighting above the chaos that's happening below them. Danny on Drogon, John on Rhaegal. It was uh, stunning as it happened. It also helped that it was probably <laughs> the most well lit shot. <laughs> Forever forever memorialized on Talk to Thrones t-shirts and sweatshirts, folks. Get them while they're hot. Uh, Yeah, that's my my number one pick as well. It is 
the most astoundingly, mesmerizingly beautiful visual. A couple other ones that are worth quickly mentioning. That, that moment where the hound is first looking up at the mountain, up the stairs as the sky burns above them and the, the castle crumbles around them and Drogon flies over. That is a gorgeous shot. Yeah. The shot of Sansa being crowned really has stuck with me in the, the week since the show ended. Also, like, her dress and accoutrements are staggering works of design. Just it's the crown itself amazing. is unbelievable. Amazing. Uh, obviously, John and Ghost nuzzling. It's yeah. perfect. The shot where Drogon shakes off the snow and ash from his lap <laughs> and sniffs John, the profile shot of them is gorgeous. I'll never forget it because we're in the uh, Talk <laughs> yeah. of Thrones watch room. And, yeah. you know, it's been silence because, like, especially the first 40 minutes of that episode was just so uh, tense. And when that happened, we both sort of go, oh, puppy. He's a he's sleepy boy. He's just so sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember looking over at Chris and he was just like, you two are fucking lunatics. Um, even though the, the horse literally was just gone in the yeah. next episode, the shot of Arya reaching out for the pale mare at the end of the bells is, is a gorgeous bit of filmmaking. Melisandre lighting the Arox. I mean... Jamie and Eddie Brand, Theon and Sansa looking at each other. A lot of gorgeous shots. The issue with season eight was not how beautiful it looked. It was wonderful <laughs> in terms of its uh, visual appeal. All right, finishing up here. Two more. Next, Paul Oyama asks, what is the most underrated episode of the entire series? He says, for me, oh, it's wow. Watchers on the Wall. This is a good one. I have a few picks. What, what do you have here? I like, yeah, Watchers on the Wall, too. It's kind of like a good one. For- Forgotten Battle episode, not directed by Miguel Sapochnik. It's directed by Neil Marshall, who also directed Mal's favorite movie, The Descent. Don't. Stop it. Don't bring that up. <laughs> it upsets me. Uh, so I, I agree with that one. There's, Yeah, that's a great one. A thing that I love in stories is when the character that you hated suddenly shows you that thing of why that character is in the position that they are for mm-hmm. that one brief yeah, moment. Thorn. And that is yep. with Thorn giving yep. that rousing speech <laughs> in the yard of Castle Black where you're finally like, oh, you know what? I fucking hate you, dude. Yeah. But, but I, will I respect follow that. I respect that <laughs> and I will follow you into battle right now. Yeah, quite the opposite, of course, for the homie Jano Slint who literally hides in the, what's it called? The larder where, where yeah, they had the food. Hides with the food and Gilly and literally pisses himself. Yeah, that episode among all of the battle episodes, because Thrones has so many of these, you know, titanic installments, it's just kind of been forgotten among yeah. the massive set pieces. But it is incredible. It's a, obviously a great episode for John on his arc and his leadership arc. It's a great Sam episode, too. It's just, yeah. it's really great. The other one, a couple others I want to throw out. The Laws of Gods and Men, season four, episode six. In other words, the Tyrion trial episode. This, especially as we spend the second half of the show, you know, talking about what happened to Tyrion here exactly, going back to this moment, even though he's literally in manacles at a trial for his life, is just such a perfect encapsulation of what makes him such a utterly captivating character and presence. You believe in him, even in his most vulnerable moments, to not only fight for himself as the nihilism is creeping over him in the coming episodes, but to absolutely dust the fucking floor with everyone around him in terms of the words, the sentences, the sentiment that he can throw together. It's also just such a devastating portrait of betrayal. What happens with Shay when she testifies against him, watching his own father officiate over his hearing? 
the Tywin Jamie stuff in that episode is really wonderful. That's great. And then I also wanted to throw out You Win or You Die, the season one, episode seven, Tywin Jamie legacy conversation over the stag skinning. Obviously, that's the little finger. Ned, I did warn you not to trust me. It's a great one. I'm going to add two swords. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The season four premiere, because it's kind of like the ultimate, that is the victory lap of House Lannister. Mm-hmm. And there was just something so devastating about the idea of like this ancient ancestral sword of the Starks being melted down and just yeah. subsumed and added to the glory of House Lannister. Um, That's a good one. It's just a devastating Season four, episode. really good. Bring us home. What's last? What do we got? Alex, to shamelessly borrow from the rewatchables, who mm. are your picks for the Dion Waiters Heat Check Award for the entire Game of Thrones series and why? Oh, I got, I got one. The POD. He's uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the POD has become a meme unto himself. It's <laughs> kind of like emblematic of the shortcuts taken. Yeah. I, the POD exists <laughs> above and beyond the show in a realm. Where only he resides. Whatever his name is, he resides there alone. (laughs) Incredible. I would nominate also from the same Dragon Pit scene, Edmure's showing in that sequence is Dion Waiter's heat check personified. It's also really in many ways true for Edmure across the entire series. Every moment he's on screen is a heat check. And then, like, Jay, come on. We got to mention our girl. The love of our shared life. The MTW. I love her. God, I love the most. <laughs> Bells from Molestown Horror is an all-time binge mode moment. Definitely a top <laughs> 10 binge mode moment. Incredible. Oh, man. This was really fun. This was fun. Love Game of Thrones. Love you. Love the binge heads. Friends, podcasting is more powerful than reason. As we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, are indispensable producer yes, and researcher. Yes. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to continue this journey for just a little bit longer and that you will join us again next time for our final thoughts at least until we get another book or some spinoffs on Game of Thrones. Until then, remember, oblivion is the best we can hope for. Jay, we got a good one here. Faraz Majid asks, can we get one last George R.R. Martin reads a sex scene from Jason? Once so tormented, she could not sleep. Danny slid a hand down between her legs and gasped when she felt how wet she was. <laughs> Scarce daring to breathe, she moved her fingertips back and forth between her lower lips, slowly so as not to wake Erie beside her, until she found one sweet spot and lingered there, touching herself lightly, timidly at first, and then faster. Still the relief she wanted seemed to recede before her, until her dragon stirred. And one screamed out across the cabin, and Eerie woke and saw what she was doing. Danny knew her face was flushed, but in the darkness, Eerie surely could not tell. Wordless, the handmaid put a hand on her breast, then bent to take a nipple in her mouth. Her other hand drifted down across the soft curve of belly, through the mound of fine silvery gold hair, and went to work between Danny's thighs. It was no more than a few moments... (laughs) Until her legs twisted and her breasts heaved and her whole body shuddered. She screamed then. Or perhaps that was Drogon. Eerie never said a thing, only curled back up and went back to sleep the instant the thing was done. <laughs>